The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Let's go ahead. And this, we thought we'd do something special for the month of December, and that is take a break from the usual, we're doing a book study, that we want to just really focus and take advantage of this opportunity to talk about Christmas from a biblical point of view, and that is Christ Mass. Christ, who Jesus is, what He did, how wonderful He is, glorious He is, and then look to the Scriptures uh, to inform us on that issue and remind us and just make it a one-month-long celebration of Christmas. So we actually kicked that off last week. For those of you who were not here, it was our first Christmas message, and we talked about the theme was simply the need for Christmas. And so somebody who was not here last week was asking me, I heard you preached on Christmas. What was it about? And I said, what was the sermon about? Well, I said, i got 30 seconds. Well, it was... The theme was the need for Christmas and the reason we need Christmas is we need a wonderful Savior to save us from this horrible world and from our sinful selves and from the devil as well. And they said, Amen. And that was a message that I preached in 30 seconds and took me longer than that last week. But anyway, so we're going to follow up with that as we're talking about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who He really was as told to us in the Bible, and what the true meaning of Christmas is all about. So today's theme regarding Christmas if you have your bulletin there in the handout, it's the prophecies of Christmas. So I want to look at some very specific prophecies regarding the Lord Jesus Christ, especially regarding His birth or the meaning of His birth, why He was born, why He had to be born, and what the Old Testament Scriptures predicted about that. I chose eight. That's just simply arbitrary because I ran out of room at the bottom of the page. There could have been hundreds because we know. In reading the Old Testament, Jesus Christ fulfilled hundreds of Old Testament prophecies and in detail. So I just selected these eight that I thought would be a wonderful reminder to us, accentuating the meaning and the purpose of His birth. And really, that defines the true reason of why we celebrate Christmas. It's glorious. Before I do that, I do want to pave the way with two passages. If you have your Bible and you want to go there, Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. The book of Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. And this is pretty much after Israel's been wandering in the desert for 40 years. Nearly 2 million Israelites were wandering in the desert with Moses for 40 years. Nearly 2 million. It's amazing. Many of them have died but they have been replenished by their offspring. So God gives Moses the law and all of the laws one more time, 40 years later, so they don't forget. Write it down. Remember this. Remember me. Here are your priorities as a nation, as a theocracy, as the nation that has been called by the true God who made a covenant with you. Do not forget these things. And in their laws codified is the theology of prophecy. And so I want to read just two excerpts from Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18 that actually talk about the theology of prophecy and the prophetic or futuristic element in particular. Prophecy, someone uh, has to, believes they can tell the future about either God or very significant events in the world. Uh, and there have been prophets throughout the ages and there have been plenty of people who claim to be a prophet who were not prophets, false prophets. We have had, we've always had false prophets among us. We always will. We had false prophets in the days of Moses. And God acknowledges that, so He reminds the Israelites. So listen to Deuteronomy 13, 
starting at verse 1, on the theology of prophecy. And God's trying to teach His people to be discerning regarding prophecy. Deuteronomy 13.1 says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises... So this is someone who claims to be a prophet of God. They, they claim to know the future. They claim to know significant events that nobody else knows. I was reminded of that as I was driving this week towards San Jose and saw the building that said, Psychic. $25. That's a prophet. Somebody, or Actually, it's a false prophet, but they claim to be a prophet knowing the future, and you can ask them and for only 25 bucks. But anyway, verse 1, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, Moses and Israel, and gives you a sign or a wonder, boy, if somebody rises up and even does a miracle, or at least it looks like <clears throat> a miracle, to validate the fact that they are from God, or some kind of sign, a physical manifestation, a tangible sign to validate or prove supposedly they came from God, even, it could even be what looks like a miracle. Maybe it is a miracle. It could be a miracle done in the power of Satan. It could be, it looks like a miracle, but it was just uh, some trick or gimmick that they did. But if somebody rises up claiming to be a prophet, does a sign, verse 2, and the sign or the wonder comes true. Wow. It actually seems to come true. Concerning which the prophet spoke. But then the prophet says, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. Verse 3, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. So even if somebody claims to be a prophet, they tell the future, they get it right, and even if they do a miracle that actually happens, but they have wrong, bad theology that leads you away from the true God, that is a false prophet. So just because what they said comes true does not validate one as a true prophet. Just because they can do a miracle does not validate one as a true prophet. Very important. You've got to listen to everything that a prophet says. And you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you, the true believer. Wow! The Lord of God, not tempting you to sin. There's a difference. God tempts no one to sin. But testing you and your commitment and loyalty in a way to make it manifest so that even you and others can see it. That's what that means. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So watch out for false prophets, and in particular, watch out for their bad theology. Not just the words that come out of their mouth, not just their predictions or their miracles. Now go to Deuteronomy 18. Here's another warning. Same context from God to Moses and His people about false prophets again. <clears throat> God promises to raise up a true prophet. God acknowledged that Moses was a true prophet. Moses was one of the greatest and most unique prophets in all of history. He spoke to God face to face, unlike any other person was able to do. And then God says, not only is Moses one of the greatest prophets, I'm going to raise up another prophet that's even greater than Moses after the time of Moses among the people of Israel. And so, actually in Deuteronomy 18, you have a prophecy about the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And with that prophecy, there's also a warning about false prophets. So, look at verse 15 in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy where God, Yahweh, says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your countrymen, you shall listen to him. And then verse 18. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. I believe this is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest of all the prophets. Then he says in verse 19, it shall come about 
So he's talking about the true prophet. Then he transitions to a warning about false prophets because they're always with us. Verse 19, It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, uh, which he shall speak the Messiah in my name, I myself will require it of him. But, transition, verse 20, but the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously, so if somebody comes along and says they're a prophet, but then they start speaking words that actually aren't from God, but they claim that they are from God, be warned. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. By the way, I didn't read it in Deuteronomy 13, but the same consequence was also given in Deuteronomy 13. If it's a false prophet, he was to be put to death. That's how serious this is. Someone who misrepresents the truth and misrepresents God was to be put to death and that was on command by Almighty God. That false prophet shall be put to death. And under the Old Testament economy, uh, that's what they would do. If somebody got up and spoke as a prophet and spoke in the name of Yahweh and they were a deceiver and a blatant liar and gave false prophecies and wooed Israel away from the true faith and they were exposed and then they were literally put to death and that did happen and there are examples of that. And one of the ways they would do that is with stones and they would stone them to death. And so when you get to the New Testament, Jesus claims to be from God and of God and from heaven and one with God the Father and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are getting their ire up and they think that Jesus is a false teacher and a false prophet. And the first thing in the, in the forefront of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes' mind is Old Testament law. That what do you do to a false prophet? You kill him. You stone him to death. So that's why repeatedly in the Gospel of John, Jesus gets up and speaks publicly. The Pharisees and Sadducees accuse him of being a liar and a blasphemer and from Satan. And it says they picked up stones to stone him. Why were they doing that? Because of Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. They took it seriously. They were committed to the Scriptures. They just misdiagnosed who Jesus was. But I did want to highlight there, in the Old Testament, among God's people in Israel, how important it was and high level of accountability when somebody purported to speak for God as a prophet. Because that's to be contrasted when Jesus came along as the ultimate incarnate prophet of God. So, now we can go back uh, to our outline. And I've got eight prophecies that validate that Jesus truly is of God. He was a true prophet. Not only that, He was much more than a prophet. And these were prophecies, eight prophecies made in the Old Testament specifically addressing the Messiah and particularly His birth and different components and elements about His birth that show us, according to the Word of God, Jesus was indeed the Messiah. He is the true Christ. He is the only Savior. He is the King of the universe. He is the fulfillment of all of God's prophecies because there have been many counterfeits to Jesus. Many people have come along and said that they were the Messiah. Jesus told us in Matthew 24, many more will come and say that they are the Messiah. Peter and Paul told us that uh, more and more False prophets will come and try to deceive us and try to deceive even the elect. So pro false prophets are among us all the time and false prophecies are made all the time. And just, just to remind you, yesterday I happened to come across as I was reading the newspaper, but it wasn't really a newspaper, it was online. It was, I guess, electronic thing. And yesterday's news was talking about uh, warning the world that, did you know that the world is going to end in 12 days? Did you know that? You should probably put that on your calendar. It's the day after my wife's birthday, so it's a big deal. Um, 
but the world is going to end in 12 days, at least according to the Mayan calendar that runs out on December 21st. And I guess they made a movie about this. And so I'm reading this article, and actually people all over the world are really upset and uptight about this and actually having anxiety and doing things about it and selling certain things and buying other things. And they interviewed a guy that uh, sells like bomb shelters and whatever they are, and he used to sell one a month, and now he's selling several a day for the end of the world coming up on December 21st. I mean, that really spoils Christmas, doesn't it? At our house, We are opening Christmas presents on the 20th. But anyway... And so this article goes on, people in Russia, people in China, for whatever reason, are mayhem, public government officials are addressing this matter, trying to calm the people. And I'm thinking, wow, I wasn't really aware of this. I heard about it a little while ago, but I forgot about it. So the Mayan calendar is running out and the world's going to end. And so somebody made a prophecy about this. Here's an example of a false prophecy. And I have absolutely no anxiety about it whatsoever. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen. I almost want to say I know I'm positive it ain't going to happen. Um, and I, the reason I know that is because I know what the Scripture teaches. The Word of God, true prophecy, what it says. I already know how the world is going to end and it doesn't end on December 21st in the fashion that they're saying. Revelation tells us how the world is going to end among other prophecies in the Bible. So, uh, And there are times like these where I have Christians, usually from out of state, who know me and many times it's uh, Christians that I have known for a while, will call me and they're a little nervous and they want to know what I think. Do you think, do you think the world is going to end on December 21st? No, actually I don't. And you can be put at ease and here's why and here's what the Bible says. And So that's just the most recent thing. I mean, we were having the same conversation over a year ago with Pastor Harold Camping here in California, Family Radio, who wrote a book called 1994, predicted the world was going to end in 1994. It didn't happen, so he made another prediction that the World Judgment Day, and we had to be confronted by those signs, and many of us saw those huge, massive billboards where the World Judgment Day was coming on May 21st, 2011. Remember that? They were everywhere. And it was national. It was getting national media attention. And Jesus was going to come and rapture the church on May 21st, and then after that, on October 21st, that same year, the world literally would be destroyed and it would end and it's over. And that was October 21st. October 21st, 2011 came and went. It didn't happen. And that's just another example of a false prophecy. But people, hundreds if not, yeah, thousands of people were very uncomfortable and disrupted by that. That's a false prophecy. That's what it does. It creates unnecessary, undue fear. Uh, the one before that was Y2K at the year 2000. That, was even, that created even more hysteria in the Christian world. I mean, I actually knew Christians who believed Something devastating was going to happen on January 1st, 2000, and people were stockpiling stuff, people were selling their property, people were quitting their jobs, people were investing in gold. I mean, it was just crazy. Even This is in the Christian world. Reputable Christian theologians were writing books about it, about the devastation that was going to happen. And then Y2K, January 1st, 2000, came and went and really nothing happened. Another false prophecy and all throughout history. So those are just examples of... I mean, this is relevant because it happens all the time. And after, and on December 22nd, when you get up and nothing has happened and life is just the way it is, be discerning for the next time and the next prophecy coming down the pike that I guarantee you are going to hear. That somebody's going to say, no, the world's going to end on whatever, the 2014, when Star Wars 7 comes out, or whatever it is. <laughs> so just be aware, be discerning, have no fear. Jesus said that all the time. God said that all the time.
Do not be afraid. Believe in God. Believe also in the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word. And that will be the light that gives you sound footing as you walk the course of this very confusing world. So with that, let's go ahead and look at the true prophecies of the Bible regarding Jesus the Messiah 1-8. through And I did go in chronological order. But the first prophecy about the Messiah in the Bible is in Genesis 3.15. If you have a Bible and you want to look at it, we did highlight this last week a little bit. Didn't go into the prophecy about the Messiah because I wanted to save that for this week. But this is true history. Genesis chapter 3. In the beginning, 6,000 plus years ago, God made the first man. His name was Adam. God made the first woman. Her name was Eve. They were real people. They had a real family. They had real children. And that's where all of us came from. And Adam and Eve were created without sin. They fell into sin. And every person has been a born a sinner ever since then because we inherited Adam and Eve's sin. <clears throat> Except save Jesus who was born sinless. But as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God... Well, they tried to hide from God. God found them. And then He punished them for their sin. And He gave consequences to Adam, to Eve, to Satan, the snake that was involved. Not only did God punish, God also gave hope. God is not just a God of wrath. God is a God of holiness. God is a God of justice. God is a God of wrath. He hates sin. He must punish sin. That isn't all of God. God is a God of love. God is a God of grace. He is a God of mercy. He wants to forgive sinners. Isn't that amazing? He wants to forgive sinners. And so, God's plan throughout the ages, throughout eternity, is a part of manifesting not just that He's holy, He must punish sin, but also that He's a God of mercy and rescues sinners from their sin. And, that, and the way He's going to do it is through Jesus the Messiah. And the first Messianic prophecy in the Bible is in Genesis 3.15. And let's look at it real quick. I would say this is about 6,000 years ago. And God confronts Adam and Eve. He confronts Satan. And Satan who is inside of the snake, He confronts the snake as well. And as God is rebuking and pronouncing judgment on Satan and the snake, here's what God said. In verse 14 of Genesis 3, the Lord God said to the serpent, the actual snake, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the other animals and cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly from now on you will go. Dust you will eat all the days of your life. Okay, that's God punishing the snake. Now He's going to transition and curse Satan who is inside of the snake. Satan is a fallen angel. He is invisible. He inhabited the snake. And he is cursed by God in Genesis 3.15. Here is his punishment. Satan, I will put enmity. I will put hatred between you, Satan, and the woman. I'm going to put hatred, ongoing warfare between you, Satan, and Eve. And not only between you and Eve, it's going to go on for generations. And it's going to culminate that animosity and that hatred between you and a descendant of Eve. Someone who will come from your loins, be born of you. It will be a man because it's Hebrew personal pronouns are used here in the masculine, in singular, referring to a man, an oncoming man who will come from the loins of Eve, who will be human, who will be born from Eve. That's what this is talking about. I'm going to put a hatred, animosity, war between you and the woman Eve and between your seed, your descendants, Satan, which would be Satan's angels and also people who follow Satan, who reject Christ. Unbelievers are also part of the descendant offspring of Satan. 
I'm going to put enmity between your descendants and between her descendants. Descendants, offspring of Eve, people who come from the loins of Eve, who believe in Christ, who know the true God, and there's just going to be ongoing warfare between believers and unbelievers on a physical plane and also in the spiritual realm. And that's been going on for 6,000 years and it continues to go on even to this day. This is the judgment. So this is a horrible thing. I'm going to put hatred between your descendants and Eve's descendants. And then he gets to the singular in the pronouns at the end of verse 15 and he says, He, he shall bruise your head, Satan. One of the descendants who comes from the loins of Eve is going to literally crush your head. Satan is an all-powerful, not all-powerful, but he's a powerful supernatural being. More powerful than a human being. So whoever's going to come conquer Satan has to be supernatural. And that's who this is. This is a prophecy of the Messiah who was to come 4,000 years after this was pronounced. It would be a man. He'd come from the loins of Eve. And when he came, he would crush Satan's head. While he is crushing Satan's head, by the way, what's the quickest way to kill a snake? Is to crush his head. I've done that in the past. Not frequently, but just a couple of times. And I didn't step on the snake's head. I was too much of a sissy. I got on a ladder and dropped a big old rock on his head. And it, it works. Crush his head and body starts flopping around, but he can't bite you. But anyway. And so the Messiah was going to come, crush Satan's head. In other words, instant death in terms of the power that Satan can wield and render. So this great Messiah was going to come instantly in a spontaneous or a sudden act of some sort, crush Satan's head, make him ineffectual. And yeah, Satan's tail is going to flop around for quite a while and swing at people and hurt people. And that's what he's been doing for 2,000 years. His head has been crushed, but he hasn't been rendered totally ineffective yet. So God goes on. This Messiah is going to crush your head. But when you go, yeah, and there's always a risk when you try to step on a snake's head. Try it sometime. Rattlesnake, try to step on his head. You might miss. If you do, the rattlesnake is going to bite you. Where is he going to bite you? Probably around the ankle area. And that's exactly what this passage says. Uh, the Messiah will crush your head. The devil is going to be allowed to strike Messiah and hurt Messiah. Even if it's a little bit. Even if it's temporarily. It is real. It is painful. So God is literally telling Messiah, you shall bruise the Messiah on His heel. He will crush your head but not without you getting a strike at His heel. You will hurt the Messiah. And so how did Jesus the Messiah prophesied 4,000 years before crush Satan's head? Well, He came into this world as the God-man, lived a perfect life, willingly went to the cross and got crucified even though He never did anything wrong and He absorbed all of the wrath of God on behalf of sinners because sin is a tool of Satan. So Jesus is dealing with one of Satan's most effective tools. Then Jesus died willingly. There's another tool of Satan, death, that Jesus took upon Himself. Then Jesus rose Himself from the dead, conquering the power of death, hence conquering Satan Himself and His greatest power, which is death, rising again from dead and, and offering forgiveness of sin and eternal life to any who would believe in Him. That is a specific fulfillment of this prophecy made 4,000 B.C. That yes, despite sin, the curse of God, God gives immediate hope, relief, and rescue to humanity whom He created, whom He loves. 
through the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and His glorious Gospel. That is the true meaning of Christmas. And this is the first Messianic prophecy in the Bible. That the Lord Jesus Christ would come for the, one of the main purposes of why He came was to crush Satan. In 4000 B.C., God promised Messiah would crush Satan. Starting with His spiritual power that He wields, and Jesus provided forgiveness of sin, power over death. And now, like I said, Satan is flopping his tail all over the place trying to destroy as many people as he can until in the future, according to Revelation 20.10, the Lord Jesus Christ is literally going to return to earth physically with a sword and with His holy angels and He's going to get Satan and He's going to throw Satan into the eternal fire forever and ever and ever where He will never deceive, torment anyone ever again in fulfillment of His role as the Messiah and King of Kings. So that's prophecy number one. 4,000 B.C., God promised Messiah would crush Satan. Let's go on to number two. Moving along in Old Testament history, 2,000 years later, but staying in the same book of Genesis, if you want to flip there to Genesis chapter 12. So Adam and Eve uh, commit sin, and then sin just gets worse and worse. That's the testimony of Genesis 1 through 11. Especially 1 through 6, because sin got so bad and so widespread and so deep at a personal level, that God had to do something about it. Hence, He brought the worldwide flood to restrain the outward expression of sin in the world. But sin continued to propagate itself and feed on itself all the way up until Genesis chapter 12, where God intervenes again after the flood this time in about 2000 B.C., where He finds this old man who's 75 years old, who worships idols, who is a pagan, who doesn't deserve to be forgiven by God. He doesn't deserve anything from God. And God has mercy on this 75-year-old sinner and calls him. And his name is Abram. And God changes his name to Abraham. And God enters into a personal relationship with Abraham and shows this incredible grace. And He makes a covenant with Abraham and He tells Abraham, Abraham, it is through you, not because you are holy, not because you are righteous, not because you deserve anything, but because of my sheer grace and mercy and love for sinners. I'm going to make a covenant through you and through going through you, through this channel, the whole world will be blessed as a result. Ultimately, the Messiah would come from the loins of Abraham. And that's what this prophecy has to do about. So look at Genesis chapter 12. The Lord God said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relative. What country? That's over in uh, the Baghdad area and the Iraq area is where Abram lived. And it was total paganism. And God said, move from there and go to a country that I'm going to show you. And God didn't show him the country first. He just said, go to a country that you don't even know about. And Abraham went. He was a man of faith. He trusted God in His Word. 75-year-old man, leave your country, leave your family, leave your relatives which is very difficult to do. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. From one man, I will make you a great nation. That nation is Israel. Israel, the greatest nation in the history of the world. Did you know that America is not the greatest nation in the history of the world? America is a great nation. Blessed by God. Israel is the greatest nation in the history of the world because God made it so and said so. So the promise from one man, God promised to make Abram a great nation. And He said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your nation as well. I'm going to make your name great, Abraham, the patriarch. And so you shall be a blessing. This is all prophetic. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. 
So if you don't want to be cursed by God, then be a friend of Abraham. If you, if you don't want to be cursed by God, be a friend of Israel. I will bless those who bless you. And the, uh, the one who curses you, I will curse. And here's the key at the end of verse 3. And in you, from your loins, from your descendants, through your blood, through the nation of Israel, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then we go into other Old Testament books and in the New Testament, especially the Apostle Paul says that when the Lord Jesus Christ was born 2,000 years later, he specifically fulfilled this prophecy because he came as a descendant from Abraham to be Savior of the world. Not just of Jews who believed, but also Gentiles who believed. Gentiles are non-Jewish people, and that's why at the end of verse 3, God promised, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not just Israel. Most of us, I believe here, are non-Jewish people. We would be classified as Gentiles at one time without hope in the world. But through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been adopted into His spiritual family. We are orphans no more. And that is a direct fulfillment of this verse. The day that I got saved and became a Christian, this prophecy was fulfilled literally in my life. I was a stranger. I was a Gentile. I knew not God. I wasn't a part of the economy of Israel. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ, who loves sinners, rescues Gentiles as well through His glorious Gospel. I believed in Him. And then I was adopted into His spiritual family. Great and awesome truth. Flip real quick to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. And then you probably want to keep your finger in Matthew chapter 1. Because we want to look at a few verses there at the beginning of the book. Just in Matthew chapter 1, 2, and 4 alone, there's fulfilled prophecy after fulfilled prophecy regarding the Messiah and especially the birth of the Messiah and the coming of the Messiah. So 2000 B.C., God says the Messiah is going to come through the loins of Abraham. And Abraham had sons and his sons had sons and then eventually Jacob was born and Jacob's name was changed to Israel and Israel had sons and those sons made up the tribes that constituted the nation of Israel. So that's the nation he's talking about. Out of Abraham would come the nation of Israel. And then from the nation of Israel, the Messiah would be born in Israel from one of the tribes of Israel. So point number two in your outline there, in 2000 B.C., God promised the Messiah would be born a Jew. He would be born an Israelite. By virtue of the fact that He came from Abraham, Abraham the father of the Jews. One thing that was questioned about Jesus when He was 33 years old, actually 30 to 33 years old, by the religious Jewish leaders of His day, is they always questioned Jesus' birth. Well, who's His dad? Where was He born? How can this be guy be the Messiah. He's not even qualified by virtue of his birth. He's not even born in the right place or from the right lineage. And they were dead wrong because look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The record of the genealogy, the record of the birth account of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew is establishing Jesus' credentials as the right to rule as king according to Old Testament prophecy. The record of the genealogy or the birth account of Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Get this, the Son of David. Jesus the Messiah was born through the loins of David. What was David? A king. What is Jesus? A king. Not only did He come from David, look at this, Jesus the Son of Abraham. There it is at the very beginning. Announcing to the world and especially the world of Jesus' day to all of those Jewish people, Jesus is a son of Abraham. He came through the loins of Abraham. So, yes, He is qualified to be the Messiah. 
Because 2000 BC, God said the Messiah would come from the loins of Abraham. And so one of the main things that Matthew's trying to accomplish as he's writing his book is to validate Jesus as the rightful king by virtue of all the prophecies that he fulfilled at the time of his birth and all throughout his life. So Jesus was born a Jew. Let's go on to number three. The Old Testament predicted that Jesus, the Messiah, would come and crush Satan's head, that the Messiah would be born a Jew. And then number three, in 1850, we're still in the book of Genesis, Genesis 49. In 1850, fast forward 100 plus years, you had Abraham, and then Isaac, his son, was born. And through Isaac, you had his sons. And then eventually you come up with Jacob. And Jacob had his 12 sons. Jacob's name was changed to Israel when he's 40 years old, when he came to know the Lord personally. And his sons would make up and constitute the nation of Israel. So we're at 1850, around the time of Jacob's death. And as he's about to die, God speaks through Jacob as a prophet. And so what you have in Genesis 49 are actually prophecies, some of which are messianic about the coming Messiah. One very specific one regarding Jesus the Messiah is Genesis 49, 8-10. And literally, Jacob talks to every one of his 12 sons, giving them a blessing, some of them a curse, some of them a censure, some of them a rebuke. And so he gets to Judah. Judah was one of the older sons. And looking at verse 8, after he talked to the other three sons, didn't fare too well, the three oldest sons. Then he gets to Judah. Judah wasn't anything special. Man, if you read... Carefully, in Genesis, before this happened, Judah was actually kind of a very mean older brother. Now, I can identify with that because I had five older brothers. They weren't all mean, but I had some that were nicer than others. And Judah was just downright mean to Joseph. Cruel at times. Nevertheless, Judah, yeah, Judah was a sinner and he got into a lot of other gross stuff in Genesis 38. And to our surprise, we're like, wow, God's being really gracious to Judah, this lousy son. Kind of like God is really gracious to me, this lousy sinner. So we can personalize it. That just shows you the grace of God. He's a forgiving God. And so he gives this wonderful blessing to Judah and uh, through his dad, Israel, verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. You're going to be esteemed by your brothers. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. You're going to be powerful. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. You're the kingly tribe. And a great king will come from you. This is the hinting at the Messianic prophecy, this kingly theme. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. What's a lion? A lion is the king of the jungle. And the Bible even teaches that. That's reiterated in the book of Revelation that Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Jesus was a lion. He was the king. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, he dare, who dares rouse him up? Verse 10, the scepter. What is that? That's something that a king rules with. That's his authority. This is the authority of a king. The authority of uh, a ruler. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. And what God is saying is here that the Messiah who has the right to rule as king on the earth and who reigns as king over the universe will be born of the tribe of Judah. Out of 12 tribes, the Messiah would be born through Judah. God is just narrowing it down. The identity of this coming Messiah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes or the one who has the right to rule, which was the Messiah. And to him 
shall be the obedience of the people. So this is one of the first very specific prophecies regarding the Messiah that he would reign as king. Going back to Matthew chapter 1, one of Matthew's main themes is to show a portrait of Jesus Christ as the legitimate king, king of kings. The theme of king is woven in almost every chapter of Matthew's gospel in fulfillment of these prophecies in the Old Testament. Jesus would be king. Um, Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, who was not even a legitimate king, this whole story of Herod as king is purposely contrasted to the true king, Jesus Christ. Herod the king, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Magi. We three kings. Well, first of all, they weren't kings. We three magi, well, there weren't three. They came over 500 miles probably, and they probably traveled in large entourages to protect themselves. Could be dozens and dozens of magi that came. What were magi? They were not kings, they were king makers. They were designated, authoritative king makers and attendants to the king. How appropriate that they'd come looking for the newborn king. The kingmakers. So that's what they're doing. Uh, and so Herod uh, is confronted and the Magi from the east arrive in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For, get this, we saw his star. He had a very specific star and somehow they knew that the Messiah had a star. We saw his star in the east and came to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, jealous, and all Jerusalem with him. Eventually the Magi figure out where he is to be born. They look in the Old Testament Scriptures. He's to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. They head towards Bethlehem. They arrive, all these magi in Bethlehem. We don't know how many there are, if it's dozens and dozens possibly, bearing gifts and riches with them. They follow the star. The star stood over the place where the child was. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Verse 11, after coming into the house, they saw the child Jesus with his mother Mary and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Jesus is God. Fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to Jesus gifts, gifts only suited for a king. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. The kingmakers legitimately recognizing Jesus as king at the time of his birth in fulfillment of prophecy, 1850 B.C., where God said that the Messiah would be from the tribe of Judah and have the right to reign as king. Absolutely amazing. The prophecies get more specific. Let's go on to number four. In 1400 B.C., we move to the book of Deuteronomy. In 1400 B.C., God promised that a star would announce the Messiah's coming. A star. We make a big deal about the star at Christmas. There's a song or two that talk about the star. And yes, there was a star. It wasn't fictitious. It wasn't mythological. It wasn't Matthew's creative artistry that he made up just to enhance the text so you'd get a warm fuzzy when you read his Gospel. The star was a real star. It was a supernatural star. Actually, it was a light. The Greek word is just light. It doesn't mean it was one of the stars in the constellation because I don't think it was. It was his star. It was a special star. It was a star that could literally reside over a building without planet Earth being consumed. It was his star, the messianic star, the special star, a theophany, if you will, the very light and Shekinah of God Almighty in fulfillment of prophecy made 1,400 years before Jesus would be born. That is the star. 
Remember Matthew 2 where it said His star. We've seen His star. We've followed His star. It's an Old Testament prophetic star. It's a star from God. It's as clear as day. And we know it's leading us to the Messiah. Is there anything in the Old Testament that talked about this special star that would indicate, highlight, and introduce the coming of the Messiah into the world? Well, yes, very specifically, the Jews have believed it for 1,400 years. And so let's look at it in Numbers 24. The prophecy of the star who would announce the coming of the Messiah. Uh, the prophecy is actually in the time of Moses. It's coming through a prophet named Balaam. Balaam was a false prophet that God chose to speak truth through on occasion. A false prophet who speaks a true prophecy in Deuteronomy or Numbers 24. It's amazing. And Balak was this wicked, horrible king. Balak hired Balaam to pronounce a curse of prophecy on Israel. And so when Balaam gets up, the false prophet, to curse Israel, he opens his mouth and instead of a cursing coming down on Israel, it's a blessing on Israel because God spoke through Balaam. Balaam couldn't help or control himself. And here's this amazing, wonderful prophecy that actually blesses Israel and predicts the coming of the Messiah and how we are to note His coming. So Balaam uh, picks up his discourse. He speaks out, which he says, on behalf of the Most High Almighty God, And then in verse 17, here's his prophecy. I see him, but not now. I see one coming, but not yet. I see somebody down the road. Hundreds, actually 1,400 years away, said Balaam. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. So this is not an immediate prophecy to be fulfilled in your day, Moses. This is long term in history. I see him, not now. I behold him, but not near. A star. Here it is, a star. A star. Why in the world would the Magi come who got exposed to the Old Testament through Daniel in 500 B.C.? How would they know that the Messiah had a star? We saw His star. It had to come from Old Testament Scripture. And here's where it was introduced. I see Him. It's the Messiah. He is coming in hundreds of years. He will be noted by a star. A star shall come forth from Jacob. There it is. A star is going to come Forth in Israel. The land of Israel is going to have a star given by God to announce, to pronounce the birth of the Messiah. Uh, we know He's going to be a king because it says a scepter shall rise from Israel. A scepter is speaking for the right to rule. A king is going to be born in Israel and he's going to be showcased with a glorious star from Almighty God. A very exacting prophecy made 1,400 years ahead of time. So the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled this prophecy to The T. His star came at the time of His birth to announce to the world the Messiah had been born. Amazing. Let's go on to number 5. Moving in history another 400 years to 1000 B.C. And you can turn in your Bible or flip to 2 Samuel chapter 7. A lot of people miss this amazing prophecy that is explicit regarding the Messiah and a detail about Him that's very important. And it's in keeping with the fact that the Messiah would be the King. And so here's a prophecy that God makes through David, who was ruling as the king of all of Israel, 1000 B.C. He's about to die. He's going to pass the baton to his son Solomon, who would be the next physical king. God gives David a prophecy about Solomon, the next physical king, and at the same time gives a prophecy about the greatest of all the Israelite kings, the coming Messiah. And that's Second Samuel 7.12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up 
your descendant after you. This is fulfilled in the New Testament and the Gospels. God promised, David, somebody's going to come from your loins. He's going to be in your blood. He's going to come from you. I'm going to raise him up. And I will establish his kingdom. And his kingdom will be established forever. Verse 13. And that is an explicit reference to the coming Messiah who would be a descendant of David. And once again, Jesus is a descendant of David, so therefore Jesus had the right to reign as king and He fulfilled this prophecy to the T. And if you went back to Matthew chapter 1 where we looked, we already read it. First verse in Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, Jesus, the Son of David. You know what that's referring to? Part of that is referring directly to this passage. The Messiahs were looking for a descendant of David who had the right to be king. Son of David. People cried out to Jesus all the time, Son of David. What were they doing? They were acknowledging this passage. It became historic for the Jewish people. The Messiah had to be a descendant of David to have the right to reign as king. 1000 B.C. specifically predicted that Jesus would reign and come from the loins of David. 1000 B.C. God promised the Messiah would be born of David. Let's go on to the next one, number six. What else about this coming Messiah who was predicted to crush the head of Satan, be born a Jew, born from the tribe of Judah, announced with a star, come from the loins of King David. And then finally, number six, in 700 B.C., God promised the Messiah would be born in the city of Bethlehem. The city of Bethlehem. So now this is really specific. It's not just you'll be born from the nation of Israel, which is very general. And then it's more specific. But you'll be born from the tribe of Judah. Getting more specific. Then you'll be born of David, but you will be born in the city of Bethlehem. And what's so amazing about that is Bethlehem was a small city. It was insignificant. It was obscure. Nobody even paid attention to it until Jesus was born there. But it was predicted in the Old Testament that's where the Messiah would be born. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 makes that prophecy. And let's go ahead and look at it. Micah is going towards the end of your Old Testament the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Nahum. So Micah writing about, I put there 700 years before Christ was born. <clears throat> and God speaks through Micah the prophet. says this regarding the coming of the Messiah. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Bethlehem means the house of bread. How appropriate that Jesus, the bread of life, would be born in Bethlehem, the house of bread, the one who gives sustenance to the hungry soul. And notice this about this little Bethlehem. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. Very insignificant, not like Jerusalem, a bustling city. From you, from Bethlehem, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. And so it is that kingly theme again. Well, how long has this, etern this king been around? His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. Wow, this is amazing. At the end of verse 2, it says that the Messiah actually is an eternal being. He has always existed. Jesus is not a created being. He has always existed as part of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, God was going to become a human being and be born in the city of Bethlehem. And if you go back to Matthew, because all these prophecies are fulfilled explicitly in Matthew, when the Magi came to Herod and said, we want to see the new king, we saw a star, and Herod begins to panic and get fearful and jealous. And then Herod calls his counselors together and says, oh, is there a new king going to be born? Where, where in your Old Testament does it say that the, the Messiah or the new king would be born? And the, 
they search the Scriptures and they determine, oh, that's clear, that's in Micah 5 too. And it says He's going to be born in Bethlehem. So gathering all the priests together and the scribes, they search the Scriptures and they determine Messiah would be born. Verse 5, they said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah. So it was predicted. The very city He would be born in. Fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ, Bethlehem. Speaking of false prophecies, in the Book of Mormon, Alma chapter 7, verse 10, supposedly is a prophecy written through Joseph Smith in the 1800s. And it says, and you can read it, Alma 7, 10, it predicts that the Messiah would be born in the city of Jerusalem. And it's still in there today. So that would be one example of a very specific prophecy that is not legitimate. Scripture, the Bible, is true and God's Word. So the Lord Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem and fulfillment of Scripture. Let's go on to number 7. In 700 B.C., the same time frame, God also promised that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. So stay in Matthew 1, but also look to Isaiah towards the middle of your Bible. Isaiah was a prophet who spoke and ministered for decades and gave many messianic prophecies, but actually one of the most specific and glorious and amazing ones ever given. And Isaiah, actually God through Isaiah, predicted that not only would the Messiah come to the nation of Israel, the Messiah would be born of a virgin. In other words, some young virgin is going to become pregnant and she will become pregnant, but it won't be through the biology of any human man. In other words, God was going to create a baby inside of her womb miraculously in a way that had never been done in the history of the world and even with modern technology will never be repeated again. Can't be. It's a miracle from God. And God predicted the sign of the Messiah is that He would be born of a virgin. A virgin shall conceive. Did you know that that's impossible? Virgins don't conceive. A human male is going to have nothing to do with the pregnancy of this woman who gives birth to the Messiah. And it says, therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. A sign. This is a supernatural miracle from God that can't be replicated or duplicated. Behold, a very strong word for get this. You're never going to believe this. Behold, a virgin will be with child. That is biologically impossible. So a virgin is going to be with child. Notice the thing in her womb. It's not a thing. It's not an it. It's not a glob. It is a child in the womb. Very important. That is the view of Scripture. That is the view of God. It is life. It's a baby made in the image of God in the womb. So a virgin is going to be with child. Bear a son. Well, who will that son be? You shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall be named Emmanuel. Did you know that when Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph did not name him Emmanuel? Isn't it kind of curious that, and then you read the Gospels and for 33 years, nobody ever called Jesus Emmanuel? They called him a lot of other things and he had other designated names, but nobody called him Emmanuel. Well, what's that all about? Well, this prophecy is indicative of his character. He will be called Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. God incarnate. God is coming down from heaven to the earth that He created and He's going to take on a human body. God, it's, Jesus will be the God-man. And that title, Emmanuel, God with us. And, and John... 
Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.